You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. Thus says the Lord, maintain justice and do what is right, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. In the name of God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. Good morning, church. How are y'all this morning? Looking good? All right. Well, today we continue our series that we started not too long ago in the Gospel of Matthew called Follow Me, Taking on the Eyes of Faith. And I don't know about you guys, but recently, if you've been alive and you've had like a Twitter account or maybe a TV, you've seen um, our world kind of falling apart even more when we thought, man, it couldn't get any worse. Wow. What's been going on? I don't know about you, but as I watch all this coming in and trying to make sense of this, I really wrestle with, Jesus, how do you see this? What's, what does it look like to be a part of your kingdom right now in a world like this? What does it look like to bear a faithful Christian witness when there's so polarized terms where the, everybody seems to be just at each other and violent? In all of this, there, there can be so much confusion, but I hope you're noticing how important it is for us to actually take on Jesus's way of seeing things a way that has the eyes of faith that cuts through all of the flack, all of the the confusion, all of the mystery about all of this and actually cooperates with God's kingdom. Doesn't take its cues from Twitter, doesn't really have much consideration for the the feelings of people. Like That's all wonderful, but that's actually peripheral to this one thing and seeing the way that God is working in our country and in our world and participating with him. That's what we want. So this series, man, I was thinking, what a great time to to ask God for the eyes of faith to help a church like this, like ours, in a time like this, make sense of everything that's going on in our world. I know there's there's headlines, but there's also really personal things that are happening at home for a lot of us as well. And even in those scenarios, even in those those troubling challenges that I know we have, um, how important it is for us to have those eyes of faith, to say, Lord, where are you in the midst of my trouble? to see him and to actually follow him and to obey him. Well, um, for others in our church, um, what may be for us headlines, um, I know are, is far more personal than just news uh, for folks even in our own church family. This is personal. This is disheartening. This, in fact, the, the, what's happened in Charlottesville is kind of just another one of these long string of, of history of racism and bigotry and violence and hatred. Like kind of what's new, what's new, people? This is the world that so many of our folks in our church have been living in. And for some of us, maybe this is the first time we're noticing how horrific some of this stuff is. Did you know, for instance, that the average Anglican is an African woman with children? So this is like literally in our body People in our church body, our own, our brothers and sisters are experiencing hatred and violence and racism on a regular basis. So though it may be headlines for some, because it actually affects uh, even, even more personally some of those in our family, it affects all of us. And I hope that we can actually take on these eyes of faith, Rez, to see the church not as just some nonprofit organization that gets together and has wonderful coffee, but a body where when one suffers, all suffer. When one are being persecuted or or come under racism or violence, all are being persecuted, all suffer racism, all suffer violence. When Jesus um, appeared to Paul because Paul was harassing his disciples, he didn't say, why are you harassing my people? He said, "Why, why do you persecute me? Jesus takes this personally. 
when his kids are being oppressed and hurt. And it affects every single one of us. So I hope that we're beginning to see as a church, folks, in a time like this, we don't have an option of actually sitting out on the sidelines and waiting for this to kind of all go away. The things that are happening to folks in our church, they're actually happening to us. We just maybe don't have eyes for it. May God give us those eyes to see the wrongs that are happening in the world and the way that God's kingdom is unfolding before it. There's so much, last thing I'll say, just to kind of frame our time together. There's so much that's confusing about what's happening right now, but there's also some stuff that's no-brainer stuff that I wanna make clear for our family because, and I know we're probably all on the same page, but just to be clear, there's some no-brainer things about what's happening, especially with the events in Charlottesville that I wanna bring light to, uh, light to. There is absolutely no place for racism in the church. No, there's absolutely no place for bigotry in God's kingdom. Hatred, death, sin, all of it, all of its friends, everything that it colludes with and cooperates with has been overcome. It's actually antithetical to the core of the gospel. You cannot be a Christian and call Jesus king and be a racist, for instance. It doesn't work. Why? Because Jesus is actually, this is the news of the kingdom. This is the, and this isn't political, folks. This, well, it is, but it's just the gospel. The gospel has implications in our real life. So if you have a problem with what I'm saying, this is what Christians have always announced. I think you have a problem with the gospel. And it's not the gospel needs to change. We need to arrange our lives to conform to Jesus' message, right? So let's do that. What Jesus is announcing is that all things are being reconciled to him. All things. All people, all nations, all powers. Every last bit of it is being reconciled and brought to peace through the blood of Jesus' cross. That is the gospel. These things that bring about division and hatred and violence, they're actually working in the opposite direction, working against God's kingdom, against the gospel. That is absolutely clear for us, right? Absolutely clear, no brainer. This is what it means to be a Christian, to participate with God reconciling all things through his son, Jesus. That said, that's simple. How do we live that out? That may be a little bit more complicated for us sometimes, right? But when we follow Jesus, when we take on these eyes of faith, he actually leads us into those places of peace. He shows us in those moments where we have those questions, what it looks like to be a Christian, to cooperate with his kingdom. And that may be uncomfortable for some of us. It actually may even call us to do something we've never done before. But as obedient disciples, may we have the courage to actually follow Jesus, even when it may mean suffering for us or marginalization for us or people looking at us strange. Let's... Don't be concerned about any of that. Let's be so compelled by love of Christ that we follow him wherever he leads us. Amen? All right. We're clear on that. Everybody with me? Preach. Amen? We good? If you have, listen, and I get it. This is not like a, I know someone's going to email me and say, you shouldn't be preaching politics or whatever. I get that. Um, and you can come talk to me. I have so much to learn. I'm 34. What do I know? Um, but at the same time, um, the, if, I'm, all I'm doing is getting from what Jesus is saying in, about his kingdom and the way that even it applied in the first century and realizing like he actually cares about the way we govern ourselves and he cares about the way humans interact with one another. That's all we're referring to. So let's talk. Come talk to me. Where were we? Jesus, following Jesus makes some things really crystal clear. And uh, racism, violence, and hatred, those are all fundamentally opposed to the gospel and the kingdom of God. So, Considering all this, we have this really strange reading in, in, the, in the Gospel of Matthew 15. My goodness. When I read this, I thought, really, Jesus? Uh, of all the weeks to have to deal with this one, let's, let's talk about it. Did you all hear this? This is crazy. I've been losing sleep all week about this. 
I even sat down with Mr. Fulton. I, I, I scoured for good wisdom on this. This is not easy. And by the way, interpreting the Bible is not as easy as we make it out to be. It is tough. It's actually really difficult. Thank God we have the church to help us interpreting scripture and not just leave it up to ourselves. Listen to this. In Matthew 15, 21, Jesus has just left this controversy with the Pharisees where he talks about, you know, what goes into the body is not what defiles a person. What comes out of the heart, that's indicative of, that's actually what defiles someone. It's indicative of the state of the heart. So Jesus left this whole controversy, heads out to this district of Tyre and Sidon, which are historically non-Israelite cities. These are not God's people, not the house of Israel. Jesus heads out there and he runs into this woman who is a Canaanite, who represents everything that the Gentiles represent, these non-Israelite people. These people, if you, if you actually consider the history where these people come from, they oppose everything that God's doing through Israel. In fact, if you recall, God instructed Joshua when entering the land to, to wipe out these people, to get them out of his way, because they stood as his enemy, opposing all the promises that he had to Abraham. So when this Canaanite woman comes out to meet Jesus, when he's kind of on the outskirts of society, at least of Israel, and calls to him as Jesus, Lord, son of David, we might expect Jesus to do what he did in Matthew 8 with the centurion who wasn't an Israelite. And when he called for mercy, Jesus gave him mercy, right? We would expect good old sweet Jesus to be nice. But he isn't is he? He doesn't. He doesn't do anything. He's actually silent. Jesus is totally silent. He doesn't respond. The woman persists. She keeps pressing, shouting at the disciples for the Lord's mercy, for his help. The, the disciples are so annoyed by this persistent, nagging, yelling woman. They're like, Jesus, just give her whatever she wants so she'll just be quiet. Leave us alone. Get, throw her bone. Do something. Get her off our backs. And Jesus speaks up in verse 21 not with what, what we'd expect him to say. He says this, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Settled, right? No, she keeps at it. She persists. That's not enough. Lord, have mercy on me. She won't quit. Lord, help me, she says. Okay, now Jesus is gonna like be merciful, right? She's persisting. We would expect him here to say something. But instead of, instead of being like apparently nice, what we would think Jesus would do, Jesus does the exact opposite. And he says this, which, man, if you said this today, it'd be so inflammatory. It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs, woman. Jesus said this, people. Jesus. What is this about? What's going on here, you know? Is Jesus racist? Is he sexist? Did he just call this woman a dog? Can you imagine if this comment was said today, how Twitter would get a hold of this and go crazy with it? What is going on here? Is this misogyny? It can't be, right? Jesus isn't a misogynist. And besides all of that, what an incredible passage to have to deal with today, this week, right? In the midst of what we're dealing with as a country. Well, friends, for us to really see what's happening here, and always, as always, we cannot actually read scripture just by face value. We always have to make sense of scripture, not only in its immediate context, but in the context of the entire scripture, right? The Old Testament has to fund, has to feed, has to set up those storylines that help us make sense of even little quips and little sentences like this. 
that we see in scripture. We also have to admit that as, as modern American folks, when we come to read scripture, we're coming with lenses on. We don't see them, but we have these lenses on. And so when we see something like this, we actually automatically classify it as something and make sense of it apart from the text oftentimes. So knowing those two things, there's context here and that we come to this with some, some biases and some lenses to classify Jesus as racist or misogynist here would actually uh, be to impose something that doesn't belong in the story, this real modernist lens, the, our situation on his situation as it is, and it's not the case. Not only that, but to come to this conclusion about Jesus in this one scenario would actually be to misunderstand the rest of Jesus' ministry in his life, right? It doesn't make sense with everything else that he said. Jesus was always the one to include the outsider, before anybody else. He was always the one to show mercy. He was always the one to scoop up the marginalized, right? That's what we know of Jesus. So what may be perplexing at first, we've got to, we gotta remain, we gotta persist with the text and study and go deeper. And lastly, and I think this is probably the most helpful thing that unlocks what's going on here in this passage, is we can't separate these characters, who these people are, from the people that they represent and the histories that they represent. And this is what's key. This is what opens up this passage for us. But to be clear, this, this passage does not model how men should behave uh, toward women. Okay? To be clear, this is not what this is about. In fact, if, if, if you think misogyny is like a reasonable thing, you, you, we, let's talk. This is, not, this is not the gospel. This is not a model for how women should, men should relate to women, nor does it represent some dynamic between races that can be emulated and modeled today not the case. We've got to read the scripture in context and we've got to look at these people not just as this one kind of universal model for how people should relate to one another, but this is actually the clash of very ancient stories that we're going to look at. Jesus, this Jewish Messiah, God's promised one who would bring about salvation through Israel. And the Canaanites, these Gentiles who represent everyone who opposes that plan coming to meet each other. I just referenced, you remember Joshua in the Exodus story, before he was coming into the promised land, God had given him instructions to, to clear out his enemies. Strength and courage, go fight, clear out, your, clear out God's enemies, those who work against God's purposes. But check this out, Joshua didn't obey. They actually left some to survive. It's a miracle that this Canaanite woman even exists, actually, because God's People didn't obey and God's mercy allowed them to continue. The God of Israel promised that through King David, all of his descendants would prosper under his reign and rule. They would have a future. They would not be wiped out. And the Canaanites and the Gentiles, their whole thing, their whole stick was to wipe out these people. You can see how these are conflicting messages. These are conflicting goals. It's either God's plan for his people to flourish, to have a future and a hope, or God's enemies to stomp out God's plans and his people. Do you see that? That's what's actually being represented in this story. No one would stand in the way of God's plans. No nations, no powers, no people, not even these Gentiles. Until they would come under his reign and rule would they have mercy. Until they submitted to God's way of doing things would God actually make space for them in his kingdom, which would, by the way, be an eternal and everlasting kingdom. It would have no end. You can see this in Psalm 2 or 2 Samuel 7. Is everybody with me, though, seeing these two stories, God's plan of salvation and those who oppose God's plan of salvation? 
So in this, in this one moment in Matthew chapter 15, we have this woman who represents those who oppose God's people and want to see them wiped out, pleading now for the Messiah's help. Interesting. Do they deserve his help? These enemies of God? These people who have vowed to see destruction on Israel? Now they come asking for God's mercy, for his help. After opposing him for so long, so persistently sinning against God, worshiping idols, desiring the destruction of his people and his plans. Now they want mercy? That should sound familiar, folks. A people like that, would they deserve the mercy of God? Hmm. Reminds me of myself. And yet this remarkable Gentile woman, she recognizes something in Jesus. Despite all this, she recognizes something in this Jewish Messiah that even so many of the Jews had trouble recognizing, actually. This, this one. I don't know how this is gonna work. I'm a Canaanite. I don't know. I don't deserve any of this mercy. But this one, he is a descendant of the great warrior King David. He, he is the Messiah. He is the one who can actually show mercy to me. What eyes, what remarkable eyes of faith for her to see who Jesus really was. Something that so many Jews, even God's people had trouble doing. She wanted a part, not only in what God was planning for his people then, but also the future that God had for his people. She wanted in. She didn't know what it, what it cost. She didn't know if she, if she had any way to get in. She certainly didn't deserve to get in. She knew that, but she persisted. She was banging on the door because she wanted in on what God was doing in the world through his son, Jesus. So when Jesus is silent in response, you'd think he would say something nice, you know? But he's not. He dismisses her with his silence. She keeps harassing him. But think about this, who's being persistent? This woman keeps knocking on his door and saying, Jesus, Jesus, Lord, son of David, help me. And Jesus remains silent. Who's the one being persistent here? The woman in her request or Jesus in his silence? Huh, I think perhaps by remaining silent, Jesus was actually remaining faithful. He knew God's plan of salvation. He wasn't, there was no plan B. He wasn't going to divert course. In his silence, he was actually persistent even on this woman to say, call upon me more deeply, more truly. You call me Lord, son of David. I'm going to remain silent and see what happens next. Jesus doesn't grant her a concession because she's annoying and he wants her to shut up or be quiet, go somewhere. He doesn't negotiate with her just to silence her. So she doesn't make a scene. He doesn't extend mercy to God's enemies just to have a moment of reprieve and quiet and just fake peace. He doesn't throw anybody a bone. No, he remains silent. And I think in his silence remains faithful to God's plan, to God's justice. Even though his disciples may have hoped for something totally different, right? They're like, please just do something about this, Jesus. Rather, what Jesus does was something that no other son of David had the persistence and the strength to actually do, right? To remain faithful to God's way of bringing about salvation through his people, Israel. In his silence, he was faithful to God's plan of salvation. He was faithful, let me put it this way. In his silence, Jesus was remaining faithful to God's terms of peace. There was only one term for peace with God's kingdom. And by his silence, he wasn't willing to negotiate or to compromise or to change any of those terms. There were one term. There was one term for God's 
kingdom and peace with his kingdom. And it was by kneeling before the Lord, completely submitted, completely humbled, begging for his mercy. A faith, can you imagine? A faith that is willing to beg Jesus for mercy. Why? Is it because Jesus is egotistical and he wants everything on his terms? No. It's because God's peace is the only true peace. God's justice is the only justice that there really is. Everything else is just a counterfeit, is a knockoff. Jesus has no insecurity about what God's doing in his plan of salvation. And to invite this woman to anything else would be actually be cruel. But to persist in his silence and wait until she, on bended knee, begs for his mercy on this single term of peace, he's actually having mercy on this woman. You will know my true peace. My salvation will be revealed in your life. When you come to him humbled with repentance, begging for his mercy. So when Jesus is silent to, his, to Israelites, the Israelites' enemies, God's mercy, in other words, is silent to his enemies. His salvation is silent to all who oppose him. There's no compromise with those who worship idols or powers or idolatrous enemies. There's, just, there's no give in the kingdom for that. There's no room for it. Total submission and pleading for God's mercy is the only term for peace with God's kingdom. Now, I know, I know, I'm losing some of you already. This is tough for Americans, Sean. You shouldn't talk about submission. That's like a bad word or something. It sounds really stubborn. The idea of submission like kind of grates on something that's like in our bones as Americans, right? As independent, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps kind of people. We don't kneel to anybody. Doesn't sound like good news to us, does it? This actually is really good news, though. For those who are suffering under evil and racism and violence and hatred, injustice, this is fantastic news. You know why? To hear that God will trample those who are in power, who are oppressing and violating and hurting others with no mercy, to bring about perfect justice upon the earth, that's good news for those who are oppressed. And Jesus is God's instrument of peace. He's the one who actually is going to bring it about. He doesn't waver from right to left. He is set completely on God's way of peace, completely on God's plan of salvation. There's no give. Even to the point of death, friends, Jesus is committed to God's way of salvation. His own death for our sake. Jesus is committed and doesn't waver. This is perfect justice when it comes through Jesus. On the other hand, this is really bad news for some of us who maybe use power and privilege to exploit others, to get our way with others, to manipulate and coerce others. This should be terrifying news that there's no place for wolves at God's table with his sheep. He doesn't permit it. There's no tolerance for it. But this woman, I hope we can be actually like this woman who, who knowing that God will show mercy if we humble ourselves and, and beg him and persist at him for mercy, she insists, I hope we insist like she does, that there's mercy for her. There's a place at the table even for her. Even for the wicked who repent, there's a place. Like her, I hope that we see that we are not worthy of God's mercy by any means, but we take this remarkable full of guts, leap of faith, throwing ourselves at the mercy of Jesus, hoping that his mercy is so great that it'll actually involve us as well. 
that we'll take even the leftovers, the, the mercy that falls off the master's table and hits the floor, it's left for the dogs, we'll take that, anything, Jesus. We don't even deserve that. This woman realizes she hasn't earned God's favor, she hasn't earned God's mercy, but comes begging for it, hoping completely, stubbornly loticating all of her faith, all of her trust in this Jewish Messiah. If only we could learn to pray like this. If only we could learn to have eyes of faith like this Canaanite woman. This woman is remarkable. And for anybody who's not uh, a descendant of Abraham, a true like Israelite, this woman is the forerunner of your Christian faith. If you're a Gentile, in other words, this woman has like gone to bat for us. She's gone ahead of us. She's our forerunner. And though Jesus referred to his Jewish disciples, we heard last week, those with little faith, Jesus turns to this woman and says, what great faith you have. Great faith in her humility and persistence. She comes to him begging with great faith. He sees this great faith and he sees her willingness to come completely under his reign, knowing, knowing fully that she doesn't deserve the mercy of God. Coming under the reign of God in Jesus on these terms for peace, Jesus grants healing to her daughter. But only on those terms of peace, nothing sooner. Friends, Jesus has really straightforward, super simple terms for peace for us. It's a humble surrender. We actually don't stand a chance against the justice of God's kingdom. Humble surrender is the only way in. There's no negotiating or bargaining. What do you have to negotiate with? What do, bargaining means that you have something of value that like the kingdom really needs, that it's gonna like, you know, totally benefit from. What do you have to bargain the kingdom with who has everything? all power, all knowledge, all goodness. What do we have to bargain with? We don't have much, people. There's no room for evil and injustice in the kingdom. And if we're honest, we have colluded with sin in so many ways in our lives for so long, and Jesus continues to extend mercy to us, even though we are not worth it. We're not worth that mercy, considering the fact that no matter what, in our stubbornness, we continue to persist in sin, working against the purposes of God. Thanks be to God that Jesus, through his own cross, the son of David, has actually made a way for people like us, even us, to find a seat at his table, to have his mercy. Peace that was so expensively bought by the blood of his own cross. Even we, even Sean McCain, can experience the mercy of God. Praise God. Now, this is a whole new story, folks. Now all who turn to this Messiah who's willing to grant mercy, all who turn to him with this great faith that throws itself humbly in repentance, begging for God's mercy, they'll have a seat at his table. They'll come to this mercy feast where not only the crumbs they'll fall from the table, but you actually get to food, eat the food that's on top of the table. Talk about an upgrade, people. That's amazing. What mercy, what kindness the Lord shows to us for all who turn and repent, not trusting in our own righteousness, but trusting in Jesus completely, his way of doing things. Now even Gentiles like us are welcome to his table. Thomas Cramner, one of uh, the first Anglican archbishop actually in 1548, he wrote an amazing wealth of, of prayers that we, in our prayer book, they're just chocked full of them. He wrote the first prayer book actually for us. 
In, this, uh, in our prayer book, uh, on page 337, you'll, uh, we'll show you, it's actually gonna be on the screen for us today. Uh, we're gonna introduce one of these prayers that Thomas Cramner wrote. And it actually comes ripped straight out of Matthew 15. You'll recognize the language. It comes straight out of Matthew 15. And it comes straight out of John 6. And what I love about this and what I think it actually can do for us to minister to us as we come to the table is to realize that we don't come to the table in our own righteousness or because, because we said the right things on Twitter this week or because, you know, we kind of kept sin mostly at bay. None of that stuff actually qualifies you to come to the table of mercy through Jesus. It's only Jesus. It's only through the waters of baptism, being united with his death and resurrection, that we even have the opportunity to come forward. And so this prayer actually frames that for us, reminding us, don't come too quickly. Remember who you are and remember how great God's mercy is for you, that we would humbly come, humbly surrendering to God's kingdom. The other part of this, I'm just going to dog ear because some of you guys are going to go, what are we praying? It comes straight out of John 6, and it talks about eating the flesh of Jesus and drinking his blood. And if some of you are like, well, that sounds Catholic. It's biblical, actually. Jesus himself said it. So you're gonna have to deal with that. But these prayers are just totally ripped out of scripture and for us to ponder, to bear, to make our own, to give us the language of humility and repentance as we come to the table before we come too quickly. And to come full of expectation of this wondrous mystery of God's mercy given to us in the sacrament this morning. I wanna read this for us as we conclude, as kind of prepare our hearts as we come to the table. Let's pray. We do not presume to come to this, your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord who always delights in showing mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of your dear son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body and our souls washed through his most precious blood and that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Amen. Let's take a moment of silence to reflect about the mercies of God this morning. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.